My first car was a 1984 Volkswagen Rabbit, which is actually a pretty sweet little car, except mine wasn't, okay? My car, uh, I, my brother-in-law knew a guy, and so I bought this car for 50 bucks and a case of beer. Now, granted, I was 16 years old, so I couldn't even buy the beer. It was, it was, it was a hoopty, all right? We, we put about $500 into that car to get it running in the very first day. We had to get it going. And uh, I remember when we would drive around, it would smoke like a chimney, just like you knew, here comes Kevin, here's the smoke all behind him. The, the car, the AC didn't work, the radio didn't work, uh, it had four doors, and one of the doors didn't open, so you'd have to climb in through the other side. And, uh, and then the worst part about this car is this car would overheat constantly. So you're constantly having to add coolant into the car. And literally, you could only drive about 20 minutes before you had to stop and let it cool down. But it was my first car. It was a game changer. The funny thing is, it was a game changer until it overheated one too many times. In fact, I remember that last time that I was like, this is terrible. We were driving. At, we weren't going super far. I think we were at 56th and Inglewood, and it was like 11 o'clock at night. And she overheated, and I'm like, what are we supposed to do? So, of course, as teenagers, we start knocking on doors. Can you give us some coolant? And people are like, get out of my house. It's late. Uh, that was the day when I realized, you know, this car that had all this promise of solving all my problems, it no longer was good enough for me. I wanted something newer and better because no longer was it enough. How many of us have had that experience? where we thought something was going to be a total game changer for us that would make everything right, right? Maybe it was your first car. Maybe it was graduating from school. Maybe it was getting the job. Maybe it was uh, making a little bit of money. Maybe it was getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend and then getting a spouse and then getting a child and getting the child to move out of your house. Like, like you remember those things where you think, if I could just get here, then everything will be good. But the problem is, goal line changes. You get that, you get whatever you think is going to make life right, and then you realize it's, it's just not quite enough. I need something newer or better or more. This happens with people as well, because sometimes we look and we're like, hey, this car, it hasn't fixed me. It hasn't made everything right in my life, and so I think, uh, we think maybe there's a person who can solve all of our problems. Isn't this why the Marvel superhero franchise has become so popular? Because we love this idea, we love this idea that there's a hero who will come and fix all that's gone wrong. I mean, let's just, how many of us would really love if there really was a Tony Stark, right? That rich guy who would dedicate his life to saving the planet from whatever ails us? Now, I know you're like, well, what about Elon Musk? Uh, hey, Elon Musk is that rich guy, but I've never seen him fly around in an Iron Man suit taking on terrorists and aliens from other planets, right? But if we're going to be honest, to some capacity, we often look at people to solve our problems, to fix what's gone wrong in life. We look at a spouse, and we think, my spouse, if I could just get married, they'll complete me. They'll, they'll complete me. We think as a parent, we, we might think of a parent as being uh, someone who's a source of hope and comfort. And many of us have been in that experience where our parent was such, so important to us, but then we lose them. 
They're no longer here with us. And we realize, man, this is kind of throwing things upside down. This person who was supposed to be that constant source has left me grieving their loss. We look at maybe a boss or a pastor or a politician, and we think that's the guy that's going to make all things right. And you know what happens if the first politician or the first pastor or the first spouse doesn't work? We can just go find a newer one, a better one, and we can upgrade it until we find the one that makes everything just right. In fact, I remember this years ago. I think it was probably our first year at summer camp for Madison House. Uh, We're working with these kids, and this young girl comes up, and she was 18, 19 years old, and she says, you know what, you know what, Kevin? Uh, She said, Kevin, all I want is a baby because then I can finally feel love and acceptance. Her reason for a child was she thought the child would love her unconditionally. Now, kids are pretty great sometimes, but unconditional love at times, you don't always feel that. But she longed for a child to feel that. And isn't that kind of the temptation in our life where we look to a person, a hero, a rescuer, a spouse, whatever it happens to be, to make all things right in our life? And ultimately... If we're going to be honest, we're going to find that those people can never truly satisfy us, can never fix all that has gone wrong. We've been in a series the past couple of uh, months now uh, that we're calling the story. We're trying to grasp the meta-narrative of the Bible. We're trying to see how the Bible has a lot of different commands, a lot of different characters, a lot of different things in it, different books, but it's really one big story that's not about us. It's all pointing us to Jesus and what he has done for us. And we saw in the very beginning of this, of, the, of this series, in the very beginning of the Bible, that mankind, you and I, we were created in the image of God. We were a special creation, supposed to have communion with God. That was the way we were created, and that was where all things would have been just right. Things would have been just the way they're supposed to be. But shortly after God creates us, we saw that sin entered into the world And sin disrupted God's intention for man, for us, and brought chaos into the world and chaos into our human life. And it it destroyed the relationship that we had with God. No longer we had that communion that we were created to have with him. And since that time, we as, as human beings have been looking for something to fix what's gone wrong with us. We're looking for something or someone to to heal that, that divide that we have between God. And rather than us looking to God to fill it, rather than us trusting in him and living for him, what do we do? We live for all sorts of things. We live for ourselves. We look to ourselves. We look to things. We look to people to heal us, to fix us, to fix what's gone wrong. In fact, we've seen throughout the majority of the Old Testament is a pretty much a story of people trying different things to fix what's gone wrong, and they keep failing at it, Right? I mean, this has been the story of the people of God. They have continued not to look to God to, to fix them and to satisfy that divide. They're looking for all these other things. They're looking for religion. They're looking for the promised land. They're looking for a king. They're looking for all these things. Hey, if we just get the right king, then everything will be right. But it doesn't fix it. It actually pushes them further away from God. And as a result, we've seen that they are now in exile. They've lost their king They've lost their land. They've lost the temple. They are in exile, suffering the consequences 
of looking to other things other than God to satisfy and to fix them, for living to their own wisdom. And it's in the middle of that. It's in the middle of that that we read Isaiah 53, the passage that Jake read for us this morning. 50, Isaiah 53 is actually a prophecy. It is a foretelling of the rescuer, of the hero, of the one who will come and fix what has gone wrong. Listen, this passage is so significant to the church, to Christians, because it's telling us, hey, our deepest longing to be fixed, to be whole, to be healed, to no longer have this divide between us and God, to have something that makes life right, that biggest longing is found right here in Isaiah 53. So we're going to start with verse 6 because it reiterates what is wrong with humanity. It reiterates what is wrong with each of us. Isaiah says, All of we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, aw- turned away, every one of us. We've turned to our own way. And that right there is a core problem with humanity. From the very beginning, this was our core problem, is we turned away from God. Isaiah describes it as us being like sheep. Now, I've never been a farmer. I've never been a farmer, but it's not a compliment to call us a sheep. Sheep are dumb animals. They are weak. They are defenseless. They are notoriously dumb. What a sheep will do is a sheep, a sheep will walk right into harm's way. They will not notice there's a cliff. They'll walk right off the cliff and fall off. They won't notice a stream in front of them. They'll walk right into the stream and drown. They're not very smart animals. Uh, Sheep are kind of like turtles. Like if you flip a turtle on its back, it can't get right. It just stays there and waits to die. The same thing happens with a sheep. You flip a sheep over, it gets on its back, it's stuck. It needs somebody else to flip it over, otherwise it will die on its back. Sheep have bad eyesight. They can only see a few feet in front of them. They are not animals that have foresight or insight. Oftentimes, sheep, they hang their head, and when they look up, all they see is a behind of the sheep in front of them. They're just not very smart animals. In fact, I think I've told this story before. Uh, There was a story out of Turkey where there were 1,500 sheep that, that fell off a cliff. The bad news was 400 of those sheep died. But the good news was it was the first 400 because those 400 became a pillow for the other sheep to land on, if you see where we did. I know, that's a bad joke. (laughs) Listen, there is all kinds of symbolism here. And let's just be clear, this is an unflattering picture of us. That we are the sheep. We believe we know what is best. We choose our own way when in reality we are confused and wandering and foolish. We are like sheep. In light of that, Isaiah is going to recall a promise that God began in the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, God promised that there would be a hero that would come. He promised a hero that would come from the seed of woman. In Deuteronomy 18, we get this other, this another picture of this rescuer where it said there would be a hero that would be greater than Moses. You see it again in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where, where, where our God promises that the hero will be a son of David who reigns forever. And here Isaiah is trying to continue that idea. Hey, there's one who's coming who will fix what's gone wrong. 
who will heal our problem, who will solve that issue of that divide between us and God. And we're going to see in Isaiah 53 a few things that we can find out about who that rescuer is. Number one, about the rescuer, there is nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. Here's what Isaiah says in in verse 2. He says, He grew up like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. There was no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we would desire him. Now, again, let's just think back to Marvel superheroes, right? There is a reason why they cast Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man and not Jack Black, right? One of those looks very good, the other one doesn't. There, there's a reason why, there's a reason why Chris Evans is, is Captain America and not Nicolas Cage, right? There's a reason why you cast these, these attractive, strong, good-looking people as superheroes. Because they're the hero type. They're strong, they're handsome, they're, they're captivating, they're charming. I mean, this is why we saw the people of God. This is why when they were looking for a king, this is why they chose Saul. Because that's the type of hero we look for. We look for someone strong and powerful and wealthy and, and all these different things. But we've got to remember what God told Samuel. God said, I don't look on the outward appearance. I'm not concerned about what they look like, about how they talk, about how strong they are. He says, I look at the heart. I'm concerned with the heart. And Isaiah is saying, our hero, our rescuer, he's not going to come and amaze us with his power, with his wealth, with his strength, with his appearance. He's not going to come as a mighty man of war because imagine if he did. Imagine if our rescuer came as a mighty man of war. We would be inclined to follow him for all the wrong reasons. So the first thing about this hero that's coming to rescue us is Isaiah says there's going to be nothing about him, nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. He's not like our typical hero. Number two, this rescuer will love us even when we don't love him. Look what it says in verse 3, 3 and 4. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. Listen, it says by men, but it means every one of us. He was despised and rejected by us, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom we, us, we hid our faces. He was despised. And we, us, All of us in here, we esteemed him not. Surely, though, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet still, we did not esteem him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. Again, here's us. We're looking for Robert Downey Jr. We're looking for someone flashy and powerful and popular and exciting and strong and wealthy. We're looking for that type of leader. Yet here's this leader who comes who's not coming in majesty, who's not coming with beauty or wealth or power. And rather than love him, our natural instinct is to say, you're not what we want. And so we reject him. Yet, verse 4 says, despite us rejecting him, he still chose, he still chose, he still chose to bear our griefs. He still chose to carry our sorrows. 
Do you recognize how radical that is? Like, like why, would, why would he do this? When, when we don't love him, when we reject him, why would he still choose to love us? Makes me think about groupies. You know what a groupie is? A groupie is someone who loves somebody else who will never love them back. All right? So here's a picture for you, okay? Here's a picture for you. Imagine some teenage girls at a Harry Styles concert, okay? Maybe for you it's not Harry Styles. Maybe when you were growing up it was the Beatles. Or maybe it was Donnie from New Kids on the Block, right? Can you picture it? That, that pop sensation group that has a handsome guy. And all those girls, what do they do? They dress up and they go to the concert. They sit in the front row. And they're like, oh, look, it's Donnie from New Kids on the Block. Donnie, we love you, Donnie. And all those girls are dreaming. They're dreaming that Donnie would stop and look at them. And there would be this magnetic moment, this eye-to-eye look. And Donnie would say, hey, you got the right stuff. And Donnie would say, hey, hey, this song I'm about to sing, in fact, every song I'm about to sing from now and forever is all dedicated to you. Why don't you come on up? Let me hold your hand. Let's get married and live happily ever after. Listen, all those teenage girls, and you were there too. Don't judge these young girls. You were there too. You dreamed of that happening. And that's a good dream. But... <laughs> That's not overly realistic. And as we get older, we learn it's not wise for us to love somebody who's never going to love us in return. As we get older, we're like, yeah, that's foolish. Why would you love Harry Styles? He's never going to love you in return. He doesn't know who you are. Yet, here's our hero. We've rejected him. We do not love him. Yet he chooses to carry our griefs and his sorrow. He chooses to give himself to us. What kind of love is this? That he would love us even though there's nothing in us that would love us in return, love him in return. See, this is where we've got to grasp that the love of God is so extravagant and magnificent because he loves us before there's any inclination of our heart of loving him. He loves us before there's anything that we've done to to show him that we have any interest in him at all. Our rescuer, there's there's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. Number two, he's going to love us even when we don't love him. And number three, the rescuer is going to suffer in our place. Again, we think about kings and heroes and rescuers. We think about Captain America and Iron Man. Those guys are supposed to lead by strength. They lead by, by might. They overcome by, by power and magnificence. But this hero, this rescuer that Isaiah is talking about is different. Rather than overcoming our problems with might, this rescuer is going to overcome our problems by taking them on himself in our place. Again, here's read a number of these verses. Verse 4, speaking of the rescuer, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 12, he 
poured out his soul to the point of death. He was numbered with transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession with transgressors. You see what he did? He didn't come with might and power to destroy the enemies. No, he came and he suffered in our place. See, most of us, I think here's the problem, though. Most of us, we think of ourselves as being good people. Most of us look at ourselves and we're like, you know, I'm a pretty decent person. Uh, maybe I struggle with some stuff, but we all look at somebody else and say, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. At least I haven't done those things. At least I'm not that, look, I'm a good person. Look, I'm not as bad as, as them. And we think our enemy, the problem, is something out there, outside of us. Our enemy is our ex-spouse who's hurt us. Our, our enemy is our boss. Our enemy is that guy who violated or abused us or took advantage of us. Our enemy is our parent who wasn't a good parent to us. Our enemy is the government who can't get things right. Our enemy is always something out there. But the story of Scripture and the story of Isaiah is that sin is a disease that has affected the entire human race. And our great enemy is not something out there. Our great enemy is within us. It's in here. It's sin. See, we are made in the image of God. But because of sin, we've become bruised and marred. Sin has left us sick and broken, struggling through life, trying to figure out on our own through our own wisdom. This is what sin has done. And sin, let's just be clear, sin is not just that we don't pray enough. Sin is not just that we don't go to church enough. Sin is not just that we don't read the Bible enough and we don't do enough good works. Sin is that we are selfish. Sin is that we are judgmental. Sin is that we think, hey, God, you say to do it this way, but I really want to do it this way. Sin is, is us holding grudges. Sin is when we consider ourselves more significant than other people. Sin is when we say, God, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way because I'm smarter than you. Let's be clear what sin is. And this hero came to deal with that primary enemy. He came to deal with the enemy that's not out there. That's not some other thing outside of our control. No, he came to deal with that sin, that problem, the enemy right inside of us. He came to deal with our heart that is bent towards sin and selfishness and pride and rebellion. And that hero came not to overcome by might and power, but actually that hero came to suffer the punishment that you and I deserve because we're selfish, because we're prideful, because we live in rebellion. He paid the penalty that we deserved. We deserve to be pierced. We deserve to be crushed, to be afflicted, to suffer the eternal suffering of hell, to be numbered with the transgressors. But the hero comes and says, no. No. You deserve that, but because I love you, I'm going to suffer in your place. I'm going to take that punishment upon myself for your sinfulness, for your pride, for your selfishness. Our rescuer. Again, there's going to be nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. He's going to love us when we don't love him. He's going to suffer in our place. 
And because of that, number four, peace and healing are found in him. Listen to this, verse five. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. I think about the context of the people of God. The people of God are struggling. They're suffering. The consequence of their sin, they're in exile. They're confused. They're in turmoil. They're longing for some sort of peace and healing to fix what's gone wrong. And here's Isaiah writing them and prophesying and saying, there's a hero who is coming. And peace and healing is found not in his great strength, not in his political might, not in your religious devotion. No, peace and healing is found in that servant who suffered in your place. In fact, as we've been in this series, one of the books I recommended you get was, was a kid's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible. In fact, I read it this week, and, and, and here's, here's how the Jesus Storybook Bible describes what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53. He says, that this suffering servant makes all the sad things untrue. Makes all the sad things untrue. That doesn't mean that he makes us forget. That doesn't mean that God is like, I got one of those sticks like in uh, Men in Black where he just makes you forget everything. That's not what this means. What it means is this rescuer will heal those hard things. He will heal those sad things, those difficult things. He will show us that God was weaving them together for our beauty and for our joy so that we can see that God had a plan and a purpose and we don't remember the pain, remember what he did through it. As we long to be fixed, as we long for things to be made right, as we long for peace and healing, Isaiah is telling us, telling the people of God, it's found not in our political beliefs, not in our religious devotion, not in our good works, not in any other thing other than the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. In case you haven't recognized this, this promised hero, this rescuer, is Jesus Christ. It is our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, the, the summary of this message is that the peace and the healing that we long for, the peace and healing that is naturally within our heart, to have this restored relationship with God, to be made right, it is found in a belief and a trust in Jesus as our suffering servant. And I thought, I thought this is how I want to close this message. Here's how I want to apply it. I've got two things I want you to think about. Looking at Isaiah 53, looking at the suffering servant, I think the first thing that we take away is we are invited to trust and believe in Jesus. You see, Isaiah is a book of prophecy. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy. Now this is significant because when we read the Bible, 25% of the Bible, one quarter of the Bible is all about prophecy. 
about God foretelling what is going to happen in the future, and oftentimes in very great, minute detail. And almost every one of the prophecies that we read in Scripture are all related to this rescue plan, to God's plan from the very beginning when sin entered the world and God said, I'm going to send a rescuer who will fix what has gone wrong, who will heal the brokenness, who will redeem us and restore us to that right relationship with God. And I say, why prophecy is so significant? Because prophecy is one of those reasons why I can actually believe that the Bible is the word of God and why I can believe that Jesus is my Savior. Think about this. Think about the CIA. I've never been in the CIA. But I watch a lot of movies about the CIA. They're very interesting. I enjoy watching those. All the Bourne movies and all that different stuff. Well, in the CIA, in order to verify an asset, in order to verify the identity of somebody they're trying to make a connection to, there are usually several layers of identification. They have several layers of, of proving that this is a person that they're supposed to meet so they don't get the wrong person. It would be bad if they got the wrong person. In fact, there was a story, uh, there was an example, there was a, a Russian agent, a Russian double agent. And during the Cold War, he fled to Mexico and he wanted to try and connect with the U.S. to find asylum in the U.S. And so as he's in Mexico, there is these six steps that he had to go through to, to uh, uh, pre prearrange signs to identify himself. The first step is he had to write a letter to the secretary, secretary of the CIA and he had to sign his name as L. Jackson. Number two, he had to go to Mexico uh, and go to the Plaza de Colon in Mexico City. Number three, after three days, and, uh, after three days of visiting this, this plaza, he was to stand before the statue of Columbus. Number four, he was supposed to have a guidebook, and he was supposed to put his finger in the middle of the guidebook. Number five, when he was approached, he was supposed to say, this is a magnificent statue, isn't it? And number six, despite his Russian accent, he was supposed to say, I'm just visiting from Oklahoma. There are multiple layers to prove who he was, to prove that he was legitimate. And the Old Testament, including the book of Isaiah, there are over 320 direct prophecies predicting what the Savior is going to be like, predicting that rescuer, that hero, that Messiah. Not to mention, we've already, in the last couple of weeks, we've already talked about dozens of historical pictures and analogies that are embedded in Scripture, which point us to understand who the Savior, the rescuer is. And then by the time you look at all 320 plus of these prophecies, by the time you get that in the New Testament, Every single one of those are fulfilled by Jesus. In fact, I wrote a few of these down. Here's just a couple from Isaiah 53. Uh, Isaiah 53 verse 7 says he would stand silent before his accusers. Isaiah uh, 53 5 said that he would be wounded and bruised. Verse 12 said he would pray for his persecutors. Verse 9 says he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then we say, let's just step outside of Isaiah 53 and look at the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, uh, it says that he would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. It says in Micah chapter 5 that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Uh, it says in, in Zechariah chapter 9 that he would enter Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. 
Psalm 49 says he would be betrayed by a friend. Zechariah 11 says he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 22 says that his garments would be split up and gambled for. Psalm 22 says his, his hands and his feet would be pierced. Psalm 69 says that he would be crucified amongst criminals. Psalm 34 says despite all of his sufferings, none of his bones would be broken. Look, we have hundreds of prophecies all pointing to the rescuer. And every single one of those are fulfilled in Jesus. That's not by chance. That's not random. Every single one of these came true. What is the likelihood of that? And and I read that. I read all these prophecies. And I see them fulfilled in Jesus. How can we not put our trust and our faith in the scriptures when they are that true? They are that accurate. How can we not put our faith in in Jesus when he fulfilled every one of the prophecies that were predicted about him? See, this is where sometimes we get lost in in reason and trying to grasp it. Listen, uh, the case for Christ, Lee Strobel, there's a, a figure, I can't even remember what it is. I think the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies was like 15 with uh, 32 powers above it, which is an astronomical number. Number we can't even imagine. So when I see this, listen, I hope as you look at the prophecies about Jesus, I hope this boldens your faith that you can trust the Bible. You can trust in Jesus. Number two this morning is I want to invite you to look to Jesus for peace and healing. Where is it in your life that life is hard and difficult and broken? The past couple of days, uh, Samantha and I had the chance to bring our leadership team, our elders and their wives, on a, on a leadership retreat. We've got to spend some time together uh, trying to grow in unity and trying to, to grow together. But I encourage you, would you, would you continue to pray for our, our, the leaders of our church? I will say these leaders love you. These leaders are passionate for you. But as we had the chance to get together, we were talking about our stories, about our experience and, and what led us to faith and, and some of our background. And I was reminded of a lot of pain from my childhood. Minded of a lot of, of brokenness. And to some degree, when I think about like my childhood, there's no way for me to make sense of everything I went through. There's no way to explain why things happened. I struggled through some hard things. But I can say today that God has made the sad things untrue that he has brought healing because I can see God's plans. I can see how God used my childhood to shape me as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, that he's made the sad things untrue, that he's, he's fixed what's gone wrong, he's healed the brokenness and made me who I am today. So let me ask you this morning, where is it that you need hope? Where do you need redemption? 
Where do you need healing? Where do you need comfort? Where do you need peace? Because we look in all sorts of places. But scripture says it's his suffering that brings us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. And we long for the day that all the sad things will come untrue. You can experience that today by putting your trust in him, by surrendering, surrendering this idea that I'm gonna accomplish things on my own, surrendering this idea that I'm gonna, I'm gonna find some sort of solution that's gonna solve this thing that's broken. That by faith, we trust in him to fix what's gone wrong. I don't wanna trivialize problems in your life. But I, I will say passionately, marriage is struggling. Jesus will offer you peace and healing in your marriage. You're suffering through some sort of difficulty or, or something in your health. Man, I would point you to trust in Jesus, find his peace and comfort in what you're going through. Depression, anxiety, struggle, grief, broken relationships, pain. I can't fix it. But I know one who can. He's the hero. He's the rescuer. He's the one that scripture says, by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. That his chastisement brings us peace. This is something the people of God had a hard time grasping. I mean, all we have to do, all we have to do is surrender our will to you. To live for you. And you'll offer us peace and hope and comfort and healing. It's as simple as that. The people of God couldn't figure it out. Time and time again, they rebelled. They trusted themselves. They were sheep. Whatever it is you're facing today, I invite you to look to Jesus and experience his peace, experience his healing. It might be a process. There is hope, there's comfort, there's peace, there's healing in Him. Let's pray.